Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very excited to host Dr. Sarah Jane Sebernak today. Dr. Sarah Jane Sebernak is an associate professor jointly appointed in the Women's and Gender Studies programs and in the African-American and African Diaspora Studies programs, excuse me, at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Her most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, is titled Black Gathering. Arts of Ungiven Life, and it's out from Duke University Press. It queries the Black radical feminist potential of gathering in post-1970s Black literary and visual arts. She is the author of Wandering, Philosophical Performances of Racial and Sexual Freedom, also out from Duke University Press, and she is co-editing a series with J. Cameron Carter for Duke University Press called Black Outdoors, Innovations in the Poetics of Study. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Sebernak. Thank you so much, Dr. Edmonds. It's a privilege. All right. So why don't we just jump right in? Can you just maybe first, let's just start with hearing a bit about the book. Sure, sure. So um, the book began as an idea, as a concept of gathering, Um in relationship to actually a very specific work of art, um, or actually in relationship to a specific artist, which is Leonardo Drew, who I'm who I talk about in chapter four. The book's ideas actually, yeah, start with Drew. Um, Leonardo Drew um, had an exhibition at uh, the Weatherspoon Art Museum, which is the art museum on UNCG's campus. And he is an abstract sculpture. Um, and uh, I think in the beginning of his career, um, gathered, found objects, um, and um, sort of rearranged them into abstract sculptures. But um, but but largely, he sort of moved from that to artificially degrading or weathering objects so they look disposed of, and then creating arrangements from that. But the but the larger questions that I was um, really moved by that were evoked by Drew's work were, you know, what are what are the stakes of um, an arrangement that bears these traces of disposability and decay um, as um, actually generating new life, new possibilities, right? And how is it that gathering makes that possible? One of the other things I noticed with Drew's work is that he, and this is um, the curator of that exhibit, um, Claudia Schmuckley also noted this, is that he uses materials that have historical resonance um, and and um, that bear the trace of um, 
you know, anti-Black subjection. So in one of his pieces, which I talk about in the book, there's the use of rope. Um, and um, in another piece um, uh, that I remember, but that I didn't actually uh, speak of um, in the book was the he arranged empty cotton bags um, and they were charred and they were sort of arranged into this sort of mountainous um, um, shape. And so one of the challenges I thought of his work was how do you, how do you comport towards this arrangement as new possibility, right? As on the one hand, um, you know, sort of the, the interpretive, there's an interpretive desire to think about, okay, so he's using objects that bear, um, you know, resonance with um, histories of violence, right? Particularly, um, uh, uh, racial subjection. But on the other hand, when he arranges them, the art is asking you to kind of reimagine it apart from category and also apart from the history that it bears. Um, and one of the questions that I sort of had, and this was in 2012, was thinking about is, okay, so in what way, thinking about Drew as a Black artist who for whom um, questions of race and class and disposability um, kind of animate his um, um, or drive some of his particular choices and where he um, rearranges, for example, um, thinking about his um, work in Brazil. Um, what does it mean to, to how is it that um, his gathering gesture Enacts, an, enacts another possibility of black freedom, right? And so that 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 emerges precisely in um, the a sort of um, that emerges precisely. Um, I'm trying to think about the word. I'm sorry. The um, with these sort of categories under erasure, right? Actually, in the aftermath of history. So the question is like, you know, what is it about his gatherings that um, engender something like a release, whether it be um, a release from subjection, um, a release from objecthood, et cetera. And so all of these questions really prompted me to think about gathering as another kind of question um, that I saw moving within um, uh, Black visual arts and as another sort of aesthetic strategy of freedom making. And it was it's sort of akin to how I approach um, my intellectual practice. Anyway, my first book was organized sort of around a key term, wandering. And so gathering felt like, um, it felt, gathering felt like the second term to join wandering because they, I was thinking about them at the same time. Yeah, no, that's so fascinating. I love, I love hearing that your practice, your sort of scholarly practice grew out of deep engagement at first with just a single artist. And then you started sort of elaborating questions across sort of visual arts practices and then into the literary world. And I hope that we can talk about some of those connections as we move forward. Um, but my first question is just thinking, just kind of wanting to sit um, with the single artist for a second. And I'm curious, have you shared your work um, with this sculptor? Um, have you been able to, I don't know, um, think about his sort of material practice alongside your theoretical one and to think about the implications of that? One of the reasons I'm curious about this question is just because it 
seems to me that you move back and forth between those realms quite often in your work. Um, so I have it. No, I mean, he, um, you know, he's obviously granted permission for use of the images. Um, and so, and his, and my writings are in his archive. Um, so not with Drew in particular, but um, the poets that I wrote about, um, uh, they all, um, I've had direct communication with them and, you know, and, and had shared writing at various stages to be like, I hope this is okay. And I hope this does justice um, to what you're doing. Um, because that was important to me that to know for the poets, well, you know, part of also, um, uh, my practice too is I like to send emails to people who, you know, I'm like, if I have a fan of your writing or if you're fearing your art, I'll, you know, send an email. And um, when I was getting close to finishing my writing, for example, on Nikki Walshlager's poems, I contacted her sort of through Twitter and then we exchanged information. And so I have shared um, the writing with the poets actually most directly and um, particularly Samir Bashir, Gabrielle Ralambo Rogerison, and Nikki Walshlager, and sent them, you know, obviously books when the book came out, um, and really looking forward to them reading them. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, and then, um, you know, Gail Jones, um, I'm a huge fan of Gail Jones, and I dedicated the book to her, and um and went to her archive, but I also want to respect, um, her privacy as well. Um, and, uh, Clementine Hunter, um, is unfortunately deceased, but I was, um, have been in touch with her estate. So. Okay. No, that's great. Um, well, I guess, you know, before we dig into this a bit further, I wonder if you could tell us just a bit more about, about black gathering, about how you define the term, about how you distinguish it from other forms of Black collectivity, about whether or not there are different kinds of Black gathering, right? Because what you just described, you know, how you're interacting with, with the artists who are in your book sounds to me like a form of gathering, right? And that seems to maybe be distinct from some of the forms that you describe in your book. So I wonder if you could just give us, give us a picture of that concept and how it's working in your, in your monograph. Black gathering itself conceptually is an opening, Right. It's a, not an enclosed um, uh, it's not an enclosed figuration. And I think when I originally um, began to think about gathering in relationship to sort of black social life um, and um, sort of, you know, earthly um, um, political agitations against anti-blackness, I was thinking also about Black Lives Matter, right? And um, Black political assembly. And so I began with Leonardo Drew, but then I started to think about die-in protests um, and actually had written about Erica Garner's um, die-in protest um, in honor of her father, Eric, and um, thinking about... Um, the protest space as a modality of black gathering, but also as articulating a notion of gathering um, that um, that kind of ex exceeds or resists certain um, definitions of gathering that I was seeing emerge out of a philosophical archive. And so I was looking at, for example, Judith Butler's um, notes towards a performative theory of assembly. And I was trying to think about assembly in relationship to the question of the performative and then black gathering as a political practice 
in real space and time, like on the streets in protest. Um, but then decided to move back to the aesthetic and to stay with visual and literary representations. Um, because it, for me, that's really where the heart of the book lies, was thinking about the aesthetic practice of gathering. Gathering as both, and I say this in the book, the enactment of an environment, right, um, by um, Black writers. And then um, in the second half of the book, Black gathering as an aesthetic practice of bringing together, but one that's always moving against um, various notions of enclosure so that the word itself kind of bears an energetics and an activity that's undecidable, right? Like to even hear the word gathering, it's, well, what, what, in what sense are we talking? Gathering as a noun, right? Gathering as in um, describing like an entity or gathering as a verb right, of bringing together. And I think that kind of the fact that the word itself has that undecidability um, is instructive. Um, you know, and one of the other, um, you know, one of the things that I, I was important for me to say this in the book, right, um, and in the introduction in particular, you know, as a, as a scholar, as a white scholar, right, in Black studies, is to not presume that Black gathering exists as this knowable right? Aesthetic concept. Um, and, and to think about how a resistance to sort of kind of determinisms around this is Black gathering, this is, you know what I mean, um, is also a kind of, you know, um, a challenge on a sort of, um, a, you know, whiteness as methodological certitude, right? This kind of like knowing, you know, it, it, um, which, you know, has long and terrible histories, right? And instead, as a student of Black studies, um, which I understand myself to be, to think about how Black artists and writers have long been imagining modes of relation on and with Earth that have moved against um, the forms of domination that are slowly killing the planet. Right. Um, and, and to, and to honor and acknowledge that learning in the book. Yeah. You know, I love that. You know, I really want to highlight something that you said, which is, um, you called it the undecidability of the word gathering. And I really like that you're working you're working in the pluralism of that word and that concept. And I especially love that how you said this because it crystallized something for me um, that I noticed when you're reading your book, but couldn't quite put into words. I like that you, you described gathering as an enactment of an environment, right? Something that an artist might be doing through their work, right? But then also a kind of practice of bringing together and that sort of being also something that's happening through, through the work, right? And so both of those things are working kind of dialectically to, um, to enact this practice. And so I just, I thought that was a really beautiful way of, of capturing something that's really um, at the forefront of your book and, and, and just so present in so many of your chapters. And I want to use that to kind of maybe pivot to talking about your, your, uh, your subtitle there, The Arts of Ungiven Life. And so we got, maybe we have an understanding of gathering, but for readers who, or for listeners who haven't picked up your book yet, can you talk a little bit about ungivenness or givenness and, and what that means to your theorization. Sure. And I should say that that subtitle was an earlier iteration that the final one was art ecology, ungiven life. I think uh, that, yeah, that's okay. 
<laughs> but Apologies I like that. for that. No, and you know what? I actually like that you bring up the former one um, because ecology wasn't in the original subtitle, but I love that you brought up the former one because it's pretty much, for me, the same. Uh, it's the same conceptually. Um, but I, um, yeah, the ungiven, is that what you would like me to kind of dwell with a bit? Yeah, I think I think givenness shows up, this idea of being given or ungiven shows up in each of your chapters, right? And it, it seems to me to be quite central to this idea you have about gathering and the sort of work it does. I mean, you say that it's a it's an aesthetic concept, but but it's mobilized often sort of far beyond the realm of the aesthetics. And so I wonder if if, if givenness is a is a key to that, or uh I don't know. I was just I was very sort of struck by it. I hadn't heard that language before. And so I figured it might be good to talk about. Yeah, thank you for the question. It's great. I mean, you know, it comes out of it's a resistance to Locke. It's this idea of, you know, for Locke, right, the condition, the possibility of his notion of, you know, white democratic self-possession, which was always mobilized by anti-blackness and anti-earthness, was the notion of the earth as given over. But for Locke, and that key question about his sort of, you know, instrumental role in the, um, you know, he's a colonizer. He was active in the uh, Carolina colony and um, like writing the charter for the colony. And so the given overness of black people is implicit, right, in um, the logic of the earth being given over. Those two sort of were interchangeable for Locke. And so... One of the things that, you know, I learned in, you know, engaging and reading writers like Gail Jones, for example, is there's an experiment, there's sort of an experimentalized um, engagement with beginning again, right? So if Locke said all the world began with the American, if all the world began with a notion of earth and flesh is given over, then what would another beginning look like that presumes the ungivability of either, right? that earth is not, neither earth nor people are given to anyone, right? And so um, Jones um, in Corrigadora, and that's not actually not a book that I um, uh, spend time with in the chapter on Jones, though I I, I do signal it in the intro, um, does that work, right? Um, it kind of enacts that imagining. And, you know, I think too, like with the writers like... Um, I mean, more. I mean, every Morrison, Tony Morrison, Nikki Walshlager, Samia Bashir, Gabriel. Well, and I can talk about what they each do with ungivenness, but you know, Morrison, um, Tony Morrison in particular, when she's writing about Beloved, talks about it as basically a house that it comes up and then is left and is you know um, dissipates, right? And so it's not a house that. Um, stays around. It's not a house that um, could be enclosed, right? Or could work as a modality of enclosure. And, you know, and one of the things I noticed too, and even rereading, I mean, I've read Beloved so many times is that the book originally was um, um, lent to baby Suggs, you know, and not actually given. It was a borrowed house. So it was already sort of like ungiven as a home. Um, And, you know, I think the way that Morrison engages with um, sort of the fleeting, the fleeting, right, in terms of relationality, 
among mothers and children, you know, that this was always like, it was, it was always precarious. It was always tenuous in time for a moment. Right. Um, that, um, nobody really had each other for a permanent, there was no, there was an impermanence, right. Um, that kind of characterized beloved, both as an experiment in relationality, right. Um, with the child coming back to be with the mother and then to leave again. Right. But also in an experiment with home, right. A way to, um, live in a home that kind of refuses to be one in the way that home kind of gets associated with enclosure and protection and stability. I mean, the home was always kind of clamoring, you know, um, telling the world that it wasn't one, right. Or it was always more than one or was more, you know, it was more than property. Um, and so, and so, what I was curious about was what ungiven opens up. And I also, you know, I was thinking about this a lot, Brittany, like even before our conversation, like, well, what is on, like, what is un, like, what does undo? And I wonder if un as a sort of um, prefix or modifier of give suggests a priorness to giving, right? Like that there's that, um, that the beginnings that were, for example, sanctioned by, you know, the white enlightenment um, philosophies of Locke and Kant and others were actually like, they were belated. They followed some other kind of beginning, some other kind of relationality, which we know to be true, right? And that, um, uh, you know, Fred Moten, I remember he was giving a talk and says that normativity is an after effect, right? It always precedes the thing that it's responding to. And I think that home and I think enclosure and, a Lockean beginning are also after effects, right? Of modes of relation and ways of being together that um, that weren't about um, ownership and they weren't about these kinds of transactional modalities of relation where one had another to use as one pleased, right? They're about other ways of being together that were non-extractive. No, that's really great. Um, so, so givenness or ungivenness is really trying to think about and position this idea of black gathering, sort of prior to these enlightenment politics of, or excuse me, projects of colonization and dominion. No, I love that. Um, so, I want to ask a couple of more questions just about the structure of the book, and then we're going to dig into the meat of it. Uh, but I did want to say that you know, while you were speaking, um, especially the beginning of your answer to this question about givenness, I thought about. Um, Toni Morrison's novel, A Mercy, just because, you you know, the I, the main character whose name I'm forgetting, but she gives, right, her daughter away to this, to this white man. She entrusts her daughter to this white man. And I think use the language of that in order to try to secure for her a better life. And I was just, I don't know if you've, if you've thought about that book in relationship to this, to this question of, of givenness or ungivenness. And it's, it's definitely not right in doing so. She is not sort of obviously contributing to a project of either colonization or dominion. She's resisting those projects, but it seemed like a very just sort of interesting book that might be in conversation with some of the ideas you're talking about. But anyway, oh, sorry. But oh, no, 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 it's okay. Actually, and I, and to be completely transparent, it's a book I need to still get to. A Mercy right, yeah. and Paradise are like up there for me as like books I have to get to, one to heaven, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and those would both be books I'd be, you know, incredibly interested to see what you had to say about them, you know, because Paradise is obviously about 
sort of four women who are outcasts, right, sort of gathered in this abandoned home and making sort of renewed use of it in a way that is deeply challenging to a town that's in the throes of transformation, right? That is warring already within itself. Right, so right, right. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it'd be great for you. Yeah, no, I'm excited. It's a book I start and then I put down and I start again. And so I have to get back there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where I wanted to go is I wanted to hear a bit. So we had two things to do uh, before we get into your chapter. So I wanted to hear a bit about you know, your book's relationship to, to eco-criticism, because as you pointed out, you do have ecology in that, in that subtitle there. Um, and then I wanted to hear about um, just the book's organization. It's organized into two parts, and I want to hear about what those two parts are doing. Sure. So um, with respect to eco-criticism, you know, I see the book as in conversation with scholars who um, are thinking about extraction in the context of post-colonial theory and thought. So like Macarena Gomez Barris, um, but also um, who think about uh, Black ecology as both a formal and conceptual question. So um, uh, Renee Gladman, poet Renee Gladman and scholar Sonia Postmentier think about uh, ecology, the ecology of a poem or the ecology of a sentence and thinking particularly about for Sonia Postmentier, um, black poetry, um, and, and the ecological possibility of black poetry, right. As, as, as ways of, of on the page imagining relation. Right. Um, I think I see myself, well, I hope that, my book um, is thought about in conversation with great books um, um, uh, like by Joshua Bennett, um, Camille Dungy, also the forthcoming work on Black feminist ecology by Chelsea Frazier. Um, and so Joshua Bennett's um, I'm Being Property Once Myself um, really is an amazing book. Um, about, you know, Black literature, the ecological um, sort of the, the way Black literary um, texts and Black authors are thinking about the ecological as an important question for Black studies and for Black writers. So thinking about um, the ways in which um, you know, critically engaging the earth um, moves towards a black liberatory praxis and black liberatory desire. And so his book, I think, is phenomenal. And he, too, thinks about black ecology in the context of literary analysis. Mm. Um, and so, you know, one of the things, even though I, I start with Nathan Hare, because, you know, I really want to associate because the term Black Ecology, notably, um, you know, is the title of his 1973, um, I believe it's 73, um, essay and where he's, you know, indicting environmental racism um, and the way that it goes sort of unrecognized um, by by white um, sort of governmental uh, environmental agencies, um, I think was super, you know, crucial. And one of the things I wanted to say was the ways in which, you know, um, writers like Hare, Dorsetta Taylor, literally to, to think about the way environmental racism works is to, is um, uh, to talk about how, 
um, black gatherings were precisely policed in favor of um, centering and sanctioning white people's right to gather, right? So black gatherings were always seen as sort of pollutant, as contaminating, as endangering, right, white purity, um, white people's rights to social spaces. And so I wanted to acknowledge that the kind of the root of that term and the way it travels. And also to say that, um, you know, where I see my book is kind of in conversation with, you know, Camille Dungy's Black Nature with, with, um, you know, indebted to um, writers who look at African American literary traditions as um, really centering eco-criticism and ecological analysis, but that often fall outside of what figured for a long time as the eco-critical, right? Um, and so, so you know, um, uh, Diane Glaze's work, um, Kimberly Ruffin's work, which looks does really fantastic eco-critical analysis of um, key texts in an African-American literary tradition. I'm indebted to those works, right? And, um, you know, and hope would be honored if my book was on a syllabus alongside those works. I think for me... Um, a key term, even though ecology is something that I'm kind of like putting pressure on and expanding and, and talk about the ways that black writers themselves are actually expanding the notion of the ecological uh, beyond what might figure as physical nature, right. Or the environmental, right. The outdoors. Um, um, I think that if, if I had to say a sort of intervention or a contribution, it's around gathering as an aesthetic device that puts pressure and maybe expands our notion of the ecological. Right. Um, and, and, and I say this to say, because, you know, I was thinking about this a lot because I was like, well, okay. In the Gail Jones chapter, like I'm thinking about the Gail Jones chapter and I was like, well, the ecological ecology happens within the sentence, right? Quite literally, you know, the way Jones gathers words engenders environments, right. Where her characters can live. Um, and so, so I think it's about really, you know, um, acknowledging the ways that for me, um, the black writers that I've studied, um, have opened up ecology and have done so through mobilizing the varied meanings of gathering, right? Um, where gathering and in the context of literature, right? Um, where, you know, and, and, and I think, sorry, this is going to be <laughs> But I think, you know, the literary and the aesthetic um, in terms of the sculptural or, or installations, it, you know, are these are really important places precisely because of the ways in which um, Black public gatherings are so policed and so regulated and so under siege. And even now in that, that regulation and that policing um, even heightened um, in the wake of the, you know, pandemic. No, it's, I mean... I love I love how you answered that because you're placing your own work within a within a sort of zeitgeist within a moment where sort of black ecology as a concept is being sort of expanded all these in all these different ways. You're crucially identifying your own intervention as being sort of opening up the aesthetic dimension as a place where we can think about sort of black relation to the environment um, and to sort of issues of, of precarity, of um, colonization and so forth. So I think that that's a beautiful thing. And I loved hearing that you're in conversation with so many scholars who are working right now. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, tell us about, about the organization of your own book, how 
maybe how the sort of chapters sort of live within it. So you have sort of two parts, right, mm-hmm. uh, that make up Black Gathering. And I wonder if you could tell us just a bit about the work they each respectively do. Yeah, sure. So the the two parts are Gathering's art and the art of gathering. And um, to kind of, you know, um, honor um, Gathering's kind of shape-shiftingness, um, really looking in the first part about how Black women writers um, enact gatherings quite literally on the page, right? Through... Um, and and to think about the possibility of black people gathering in um, you know in the midst of um, an owned world, right? An owned and police and regulated world. And so, you know, Toni Morrison's beloved was always going to be. I mean, the clearing is an iconic scene of black gathering in African American literature. And and but you know, the more I read the book, that I'm I. I there's all these ways in which when Morrison, I think, is um, enacting gathering on the page, it could be as large as multiple people in the same space together to other smaller kinds of togethernesses, right? Um, Setha and her two kids on the ice, right? Um, uh, when when Setha's in labor with Denver and, you know, and she's you know, and the spores are part of that gathering, right? And I think that Morrison really kind of challenges us as readers to think about the multiplicity of what gathering means um, when in the context of fugitivity, right? Um, and so, so right. So, so, you know, based on what Morrison herself said about Beloved as a book that was sort of alchemically kind of engendering um, it began as a door, right? And then something cre- came out of that door. Made me think about how what she's doing is quite literally the book. Sorry, my cat. <laughs> the book is um, creating an environment for her characters, right? And and the and the beautiful thing is that the book bears its own protection, right? So that at the end, right when. Um, Morrison instructs us that this should not be passed on, you know, for a long time, you know, the way that I heard that line interpreted was in the context of violence. Right. But also what if the story quite literally ended with the character so that what they made together, right. What the pages made together for those besieged characters was just for them. If that makes sense. And so it is for the reader, but then it's also kind of, the book contain is you know it's um, it's a world within itself, right? Um, that can't be that can't be passed on, or maybe shouldn't be passed on. That there's something that the characters made together that um, you know the literary um, moves to protect. Um, with Samia Bashir and Gabrielle Rolando Rogerison, you know what I was interested in thinking about was. Um, the way those both of those writers th- thought about black ecology in, in relationships to the galactic, right? So that, um, so sort of un- along kind of invisible lines, right? Of like quantum energy and dark matter, and um, you know, and and the astrophysical, right? So and and. Because both of them, like Samia Bashir in particular in field theories, is really amazingly 
bringing together uh, quotes by Black feminist thinkers and then lines from, you know, physicists. And um, in the poems that I look at, she's deploying physics principles to offer up a particular theory of gathering or a particular image or scene of gathering. Um, and so, yeah, and I think miraculously, one of the things that, that both of those writers in chapter two do is enact um, um, or expand the notion of the Black ecological beyond the earthly, right? Beyond what what tends to be figured as environment as we know it, right? Um, yeah. What if the environment can't be detected, right? What, like, you know, in what ways can the environment, does the environment exceed one's capacity to sense it, right? But that doesn't mean that it's not there or not, you know, constitutive of one's understanding of relationality. Yeah, no, I mean, all of that's great. And I definitely want to dig more into um, what you had to say about Morrison and, and that first chapter, especially. But I'm just, I'm curious if, if, if part one, you know, which is called Gatherings Art, you know, how that's maybe different from, from part two. If folks are coming to your book, The Art of Gathering, sort of what's being distinguished there? So I just want to talk about that for a bit. And then I do want to dig into what you've just said about these, about the first two chapters that are contained within. Sure. Within part one. Um, so like, you know, in my kind of mode tends to be survey so that these are examples, right? Um, literary and artistic examples of aesthetic practices, right? And so the second part, um, the art of gathering is thinking about Leonardo Drew, you know, um, uh, with whom the project really sort of intellectually started. Um, and alongside Gail Jones, right? And what are they, you know, what are they share um, as um, aesthetic, stra- as formal strategies? Because they're very different as obviously as practitioners, but they're both abstractionists. And I actually think that Jones, I haven't seen, it doesn't mean, you know, it's not, but Gail Jones talking about, talking about Gail Jones as an abstractionist, as part of a history of black abstraction, right? Um and because I, I think that abstractional practices in Jones um, oftentimes, um, uh, you know, I think there's a kind of an ableist um, um, or even sort of heteronormative um, ways in which her literature gets critiqued or excluded as not offering positive representations or of, um, you know, not the way that she mobilizes voice is kind of putting pressure on straight and narrow kinds of respectable modalities of expressivity. And for Jones, it's less about what the words together say, but that the words themselves as objects, right? Um, In another conversation with some colleagues about the book, I said, you know, that's how Jones learns to write. She gathers because she, you know, it actually comes out of a gathering. She said, you know, I, I learned to write through listening. So already Jones's modality of authorship is multiple, right? She's, she's sitting with people and listening. So it's already a kind of multiple um, practice that comes out of a gathering. And I think what I really liked about putting Jones. So, so, okay. So, let me get back to the question. So Jones and Drew, um, my engagement was that with them is to think about how both artists gather, but not towards something, right? So gathering is an activity, 
without enclosure. It's not teleological. There's not an end to it, right? It's about what bringing together now and and what bringing together enacts for different people, um, you know, is ultimately the way, right? People experience the art. But I was interested in the activity itself because I think the activity itself is very important for both artists, right? Um, you know, Jones talks about how she wanted to kind of regard words as these kind of rhythmical entities, right? And to, you know, and to, and to listen and to be faithful to that listening and how she arranged, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for Drew, it, you know, and he, and I say that, you know, the, I say this in a quote um, by him in the introduction, he kind of listened to the objects, like, where did they want to go? The work is going to lead you by the nose. It's going to tell you where it wants to go, right? Um, and so, so I, you know, I think, I mean, maybe in some ways it was an experiment in both, you know, a practice in terms of trying to look at these, you know, these two authors in this one section together, and then these um, other set of authors in this other section together. But I think I really wanted to get at um, um, that duality of gathering as literary image, right? Um, and figuration and gathering as an aesthetic practice that align lines up with abstractional practices. No, that's, that's great. I mean, just hearing you talk about it really, you know, it's helping me sort of in my mind, it's helping me sort of lay claim more to, to some of the arguments that you're making in both parts. Um, but I wanted to return just sort of briefly to, thinking about that first chapter and a lot of the stuff that you had to say about, about Morrison and Beloved, just because I think that that's such a rich text to, in which to think about gathering. And I think you do a beautiful job with it. And I'm so, I'm so um, struck by your, your reading of the last line, especially that this is not a story to pass on, because that's also a, a line that has this sort of duality, the kind of uncertainty, the undecidability um, that you see in, see in uh, gathering. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious about all the different forms of gathering in that book, you, you focus on, on the clearing a, a great deal also on the ice, but I'm curious about, you know, I, I just want to hear your thoughts. If you have ideas about, you know, the book itself and Setha's journey, right? I mean, to me, that book has always been so much about Setha's isolation and what frees her from the ghost of her daughters in part, her being welcomed back to the community. But before that sort of welcoming back, is, is possible. We get to see, you know, those two women. It's one of my favorite moments in the book. And sorry that this is so long, but it's it's like, <clears throat> excuse me, it's women from the town and they're discussing Setha and one is like expressing absolute contempt for her, you know, and, and another one isn't. It's a little bit sort of kinder. Uh, but, but the tenor of the conversation is not only about the sort of act that Setha has committed, but the fact that she didn't even give the sort of townswoman a chance to understand it. Right. Like that is her crime, that she turned their, her back on them out of pride, you know, before she could even give them a chance to either accept or reject her. And that's how the contemptuous woman sort of frames her desire to not to not to not be in community with Setha. And so I just that, that ending scene where all the women come in front of the house and kind of exercise the ghost. Right. It's not a scene. And Morrison is, is, is very clear about highlighting this. This is not a scene where they've all suddenly like Setha but some other higher order calls them together. And so I guess I'm just, I'm curious what you make of that scene. I'm curious, I'm just, maybe I'm just curious about all of that because it's something that I think about often 
uh, with that novel because it's just a favorite. To me, it's a really incredibly complicated and complex depiction of community. They don't all like Setha. They don't all respect Setha. But even so, there's some higher order that calls them together to help her out. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I think there's a couple things that I've um, sort of, you know, when you, you know, you, you know, the, I always think of like the book is like your learn kind of to demonstrate your learning, but also, you know, that learning is ongoing, right? Like it's, it, you know, it continues the more you write and the where you are in the book. And so when I ended with Leonardo Drew, one of the things that Leonardo Drew and Stephen Bess, you know, none like us um, kind of got me to thinking about this. What does it mean to unmoor gathering from community or from belonging, right? Because, you know, you're right. I mean, so much of, you know, that book and 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 beloved is at the end quite literally that the three women right were on the margins of community right but it was some other kind of relation right it was some other kind of togetherness that was on the outskirts of community and i think morrison is inter- you know is interested in that and kind of expanding what sociality and what relationality means beyond community Right. Um, and, and beyond community as visible and knowable. Right. As other people. Right. Um, and, you know, for example, thinking about, uh, you know, Setha returning to the place where the clearing happened. Right. Where Suggs's speech and prayer happened and hoping that the feel of it or the sound of it would still be somewhere in the trees. Right. So so there's a kind of. Um, you know, I think that with Morrison, I also think with Leonardo Drew, I also think this with <laughs> Gail Jones, is that gathering, I think, what happens when gathering gets separated, even experimentally, from ideas of belonging, right? From ideas of being together. And then the second piece is that gathering seems to be the condition of possibility of release, right? So quite literally, that the group of black women gathering who arrive at the home release the spirit, right? Like they, like it was integral. Their gathering was integral for a release. Right. Um, And, you know, I think that that's been another part of learning from the book is that those have been that, that gathering is not um, the condition of possibility of enclosure. Right. I mean, that was, that's the other beginning, the, the, you know, the beginning of, um, you know, of, of, you know, that was marked by chattel slavery and, and, and in genocide and of the enclosed world of the enclosed body. Right. But then in black literary and aesthetic practices thought about gatherings relationship, right. To release, right. Because even in Morrison's, it like instructs us, right. That the people came together to let it go. Right. And so, so, yeah, I mean, I think that on the one hand, you're right. I think that Toni Moore, like in Beloved, she's on the she's on the outs, like she's on the outs. Um, you know, even the home is like on the outskirts, right, of town. And so she's on the outside, but there's relation there. Right. And so I think it's about kind of putting pressure on what gathering could be. And then I think in that way, there's a sort of critique of normative ideas of you know, community, right? Uh, or normative ideas of identity that are, you know, conditional for community inclusion, 
right? What, you know, what would it mean to imagine a gathering that wasn't kind of predicated on somebody else's ideas of belonging, of who or what belongs? Mm-hmm. Now, that's really fascinating. Well, I wonder, you know, so much of your reading of Beloved is, is, is um, organized around this sort of concept of the home um, and how Toni Morrison is, is, is resisting that concept. And I wonder if, if the work that you see Nikki Walschlager doing is different than that work, um, if it's complementary, if it's if you think they're two sort of distinct projects that nevertheless sort of help you sort of bear conceptually on this on this idea of the home. I'm just curious if you could say yeah. a bit about that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that thinking about Beloved and Houses, Nikki Walschlager's um, collection Houses Together is um, was really helpful to consider the aesthetic practices of homemaking where what I love about Walsh Lager's book houses is that each poem is a way of arranging homeness, right? Is a way of arranging. It's a, it's an arrangement. Like the house isn't visible from the outside, but mostly it's visible. I mean, it is, I mean, it's, you know, this is the pink house, but the pink house becomes a house through the poet's detailing of how it's arranged where what's arranged are not just kind of like artifacts, you know, uh, you know, tchotchkes, but also moods and feelings and histories. And they all come together to create this particular home. But the important piece too, is that as a poem, formally speaking, what you know is not the kind of like entity that is the house, but what, what all of the interior right? All the interior diversity that makes it. And so, you know, I think why I like um, Walsh Lager's work alongside Morrison's is that I think it also um, helped me reorient my relationship to sort of interpreting Beloved less as um, Morrison's like eco-literary practice, but the eco-aesthetic practice, like quite literally how Morrison is arranging the home and arranging the environment or arranging words to create a feel of an environment. Right. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable, and this is only, you know, something that I only realized sort of after the fact when I was engaging with um, Nikki Walschlager's poems is that the cover of houses, I don't know if you've seen it is, is bright red. I mean, it's, um, and there's that, you know, really iconic scene and beloved of the kitchen when Paul D enters, it was red, like it was like a siren, like it locked him where he stood. And not that they were, you know, saying that, you know, Walschlager's cover is like a, a direct referent, but the, the it, you know, what calls you to a room and why is it that, a, you know, what happens when a seemingly innocuous space of care, right? Like the kitchen kind of iconic, like it's where meals are, you know, made and, and and also in the book, in Beloved, it's the kitchens are, you know, a place where people are healed, right? Um, and actually where Setha runs um, uh, after killing her child, right? It's where she goes first um, to meet baby Suggs. And so, you know, the, but what happens when a kitchen is red, right? It's quite literally the color of blood. And, and it's, and that you feel it before you even walk in. And the role of color there. And so I think that Morrison, like Walschlager, are, are, are really brilliant at this these kinds of 
um, thinking about space sensually, thinking about the color of a room, um, what's in the room, um, you know, and the tastes that are shared in a room, like all of these kind of aesthetic um, qualities of an experience of a room. Like even when Paul D goes to the second floor of, um, you know, of the home, he says that the, the air was charmed and very thin. And it's so for me, it was, it's it, like the quite literally the house has its own ecosystems and they're varied and each room feels differently based on how Morrison arranges them. So I think in that way, I see this beautiful overlap between, I mean, they're written in different times, right? There's a 20 year difference, but there's a beautiful overlap between um, works. And there's also a really important attention to um, the practice, right? Of how rearranging one's home, like black women writers, rearrangements of home on the page quite literally create other environments that people might go seek, right? Um, which include the narrators themselves. Yeah, that's very, it's reminding me just because I always teach it in my Intro to Black Women Writers course, what you just said is is of uh, Alice Walker's, uh, our, our grandmother's gardens, you know, our mother's gardens, excuse me, in search of our mother's gardens. Oof. And so everything you just said <clears throat> reminds me very much of that essay in terms of arrangement, in terms of everyday beauty, in terms of cultivation. Um, so no, that's great. Just because of time, I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip around. I feel like we've gotten a, I've gotten a chance to, to really dig into your book, but there's a couple of other questions that I'm just kind of selfishly curious about. And that's just the periodization, right? Like all of the, all of the texts in your book are, the texts or the artworks are, are post-1970s. And so I'm curious about about why, you know, about whether or not is is that when black gathering as a concept can be you know, sort of substantially observed, enacted, conceptualized, or is that just you know a preoccupation of, of your own? I'm I'm just curious about that periodization, right? It, it, is there a reason why it's post kind of 1970s? You know, I think the writers that I love are coming out of that particular period. So there's um, like, I was, I've been reading Gail Jones for a long time and Gail Jones, you know, um, is in the first book. Um, Toni Morrison is somebody I wanted to write about for a long time. Um, and so, no, I wouldn't say that like, you know, black gathering as aesthetic practice or strategy is like, absolutely not, not, not at all. <laughs> too simple to the, but, you know, but I do think that what I'm interested in, um, is that even though the book isn't, um, in direct conversation with, um, histories of black activism around environmental racism or environmental injustice. And it's not like, you know, for example, like a book, like Tony K. Bombard's The Salt Eaters, like there's, you know, there's, there's an evocation of environmental racism as a, as a liter, you know, as a topic within the text. Right. Um, but I'm curious about how these writers might be included in a larger trajectory of, 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 um, you know, black writers writing in the wake of, um, environment activism around environmental racism that really kind of gets periodized, um, like both environmental racism as a concept that's named politically, 
um, in the 1970s, right, as a space of Black activism, um, that, you know, what would it mean to think about writers, you know, like Morrison in the 80s and, and Walschlager and Jones in the set also in the 70s as actually um, intervening within a discourse um, of environmental justice and injustice by imagining other Black environments that might be possible on the page, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in that way, that was the, you know, that that's the one kind of um, thought I had is like, well, it's post-97, so what's happening in 1970s? Okay, right? These writers, you know, th- this activism is happening, but what would it mean to think about even if environmental racism is not necessarily named in Beloved, it's also a book about environmental racism, right? Um, and she's engaged with the environment as racist, right? As, you know, um, you know, um, as a place where um, life is under siege, right? Um, and the earth gets extracted from, right? And people get extracted from. And so, so I think in that way, I think the post 1970s is critical, even if it kind of started with these are the writers that I've always really been engaged with. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Well, this has been, you know, this has been a really fantastic episode. I'm so happy that I got a chance to talk to you about your new book. And I'm, apologies again for getting that subtitle wrong. No, not at all. Uh, but, the, but the book is uh, Black Gathering Art, Ecology, and Ungiven Life. And I've had the chance to talk with Dr. Sarah Jane Severnack today. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Brittany.